Hey, hey, welcome to Why Are We Whispering with me, Jenny Gay, author, stepmom, and all-around truth seeker and teller. If you're tuning in, you too are tired of sugar-coated content and conversations. This is the place where I put a megaphone to the mouths of adults, talking about life experiences that most of us find too shameful, too uncomfortable, too traumatic, and too embarrassing to discuss openly. We dive headfirst into experiences, thoughts, and behaviors that we keep secret or hush-hush, never truly speaking honestly and openly about them, but that most of us have in common. And I'm talking about it because life can be hard, it can be ugly, and it can be painful. And guess what? It's like that for all of us. So let's stop whispering. Hi, everyone. Thank you again for joining in to Why Are We Whispering podcast, our second episode. Today, I am joined by Lula Dembele. And I'm going to actually start by giving a trigger warning um, ahead of today's episode as we're talking about sexual abuse and domestic violence. Today's episode is so important as childhood sexual abuse and child and adult domestic violence is way more prevalent than any of us would like to admit. And nothing will change and our kids will continue to be vulnerable and in danger unless we start talking more openly and honestly about how real it is for millions of us. I have Lula Dembele joining me today. She's a specialist in gender relations and advocacy for survivors of childhood sexual abuse and child and adult domestic violence. So thank you so much, Lula, for joining us today. And I think a good place to start is by getting a real understanding of the prevalence or how common both domestic violence and childhood sexual abuse is, as I know there are so many people, but that I know as well, that like to deny how prevalent it is and how many people are actually living in these situations and having these experiences as children and as adults. So should we start there and also to get a good understanding about how you got into this line of work and um, if you yourself have had any experiences with this? Yeah, well, I might actually start with my experience and how I got into this work and then uh, speak to some of the statistics and prevalence. Um, So I did experience child sexual abuse at a very young age, at the age um, between three and four. Um, My mother's partner at the time, who was physically and sexually and controllingly abusive towards her, uh, also was sexually abusing me. Um, Fortunately, we got out of that situation um, but it was, uh, as you can imagine, a significant impact on both my life and my mother's life and sort of shaped my understanding of the world um, at that very young age because there are a few incidences in the responses to what we went through that showed me at the time that the world is not on the side of survivors and certainly not of women and girls. Uh, So I guess in that way I was really exposed to um, inherent forms of patriarchy, victim blaming and misogyny at a very young age. And I guess that made me kind of hypervigilant, one for the potential of men's violence to impact my life again, but also uh, to the ways that women and children are treated by our systems in society. So a couple of examples were that my mum was seeking help um, for the physical symptom that she had identified for me. 
and she went to uh, one doctor who dismissed it out of hand and just said, oh, sometimes little girls put things inside themselves and that's just what's going on here. Um, then when we had a forensic examination, um, the doctors sort of absolutely confirmed that I had been um, sexually violated and broke it to my mum in a way that basically said, how could you have let this happen to her and blamed my mum. And then in our process of deciding whether to press charges or reporting uh, criminally the matters, um, I was faced with the proposition of being a four-year-old and being in a courtroom where I would be in the witness box being cross-examined and the perpetrator would be in the room. But my mother wasn't allowed to be there um, because of the perception that I would be being coached by my mum. So they're all really full-on things <laughs> to be aware of at a young age. And, yeah. you know, in addition to that, you know, comments were made by well-intentioned but not well-understanding family members, including um, my maternal grandmother sort of suggesting that I was somehow to to blame by saying, oh, well, you know, little girls, they wriggle in men's laps and somehow, you know, that therefore... I prompted the abuse um, and also my auntie who was a lawyer, you know, just telling mum some hard truths but not welcome ones at the time that, you know, girls who experience child sexual abuse often grow up to be involved in prostitution. Not that there's anything wrong with sex work but obviously that's not exactly a welcome or supportive response. So I guess that taught me that at a very young age, you know, the people you hope are going to be compassionate and supportive and, and even those who are well-intentioned, um, and love you can say really hurtful things and really not be well informed about the issues and that can be really damaging uh, for victims and their choices to speak out further and certainly the shame that you feel that is placed on you if you're blamed for that violation being done against you or blamed for a man's use and choice of sexual violence particularly but all forms of violence against women and children. Um, and then, you know, obviously systematically just my mum being blamed. No one saying, how could this man do this? How, what is wrong with him? Why is he doing this? But how could you let this happen to your daughter? And, you know, that mm. assumption throughout our legal system that women lie, that children lie, that women coach children to make false reports of men's violence. And that's a good point and time to bring it into the, statistics um, around prevalence because our legal systems and our medical systems, so many of them, are out of step with the evidence on the prevalence of these issues. In Australia, uh, worldwide, we know that one in three women experience um, gendered violence and domestic and family and sexual violence. I'm just going to be very specific in my stats I bring up here about prevalence in Australia. And, you know, we know that one in four women have experienced intimate partner violence since the age of 15 compared to one in 14 men. Um, sexual assault is one in five women have experienced sexual assault in Australia since the age of 15 and one in 20 men. Um, sexual harassment in the workplace is one in two women. But regardless of the victim, 95% of men and 94% of women report that it is a male perpetrator using violence um, and though, whether that's physical, emotional, sexual violence, um, the perpetrators are overwhelmingly men. So that's part of why we talk about this as a gendered issue. More recently, uh, Australia did a childhood maltreatment study, which found, not surprisingly, that 
almost 30% of Australians experience child sexual abuse. So our systems and our responses are recently in Australia, um, in the state of New South Wales, there were two studies done regarding the criminal process for victim survivors of sexual violence. Uh, One studied the transcripts um, from court cases and it identified you know, just overwhelming rates of lawyers using rape mythology as part of their defence, undermining the credibility of the victim, uh, talking about things like delayed reporting or memory loss. Um, And those two things, one, it is overwhelmingly common that victim survivors don't report immediately. Uh, We feel an immense amount of shame. We're blamed. We know that engaging with police in the legal system is hard. So often people will take their time to report. That's just a matter around these issues. And as far as memory, when you experience a traumatic event, your memory does all sorts of things to try to protect you. Your body does all sorts of things to try to protect you. So those arguments are so out of step with the evidence base around, you know, physiological responses, around social responses to these issues, the amount of rape myths that go on, you know, still the victim blaming, why was she there? What was she wearing? Um, You led him on, you know, he's not responsible for his choices. Basically, our whole system puts the victim on trial, not the perpetrator. So it's just a massive gap we have to reach uh, for the systems and places where we encourage and say that women and children should be safe, should be reporting, you know, uh, all of that, if this was a real crime, you'd report it kind of attitude. Well, when people feel like they can report it, too often they are let down by our systems. um, And if not let down, they're blamed, re-traumatised and harmed. um, And the harm is reinforced, amplified, and often elongated for a longer period of time before they're able to get through that heightened sort of crisis stage and move through to a time of distance from the event and recovery when you're being taken through protracted court cases and having your evidence questioned, having your personality questioned, having your sexual history questioned, uh, when what we should be asking is why did he do it? How did he do it? Why aren't we responding appropriately right. to him? So I, I, I mean, I want to thank you for your candor and, and sharing your trauma and your experience. So right off the bat, thank you very much for that, because I know that there's lots of women and men probably that are listening who have a similar story. And probably when, if it did go reported, more often than not, it doesn't. But if it was gone reported, their experience would have been probably very similar to this to the system that you experienced in Australia, here in the UK, as well as in the US and in Canada. So do you do you believe that this is rooted in misogyny, I mean, and the patriarchal system? And that's why, you know, you mentioned how the victim is always blamed. So it's this blame and shame game. It's It seems to me like these, um, the legal systems are set up to keep the perpetrators perp- perpetrating and the victim silenced. And if, you know, 90% or 98% of the um, abusers are men, the system was set up to protect them. So how do, how do we even go about, like, you know, starting to take, tear that system apart and start rebuilding it? How do we even um, start that process Well, I would agree with your statement that um, particularly the legal system, um, but many of our structures in society and our social norms are built on patriarchal norms and are built to protect men. And 
not just any men, but particularly in the context of colonisation um, in Australia, certainly white men and white able-bodied men, white men who have income, money, assets, um, you know, that's sort of the basis mm-hmm. of a lot of our legal system is around property and property rights um, and the right of a man to go and say, this other man took this thing from me or didn't pay me for this sort of thing. And, and so it is really not designed to uh, protect women and children who until, you know, recent history were considered chattel property of the men in their lives. Um, so I, I definitely think those elements are still very, very strong and pervasive in the legal system. Up until recently in Australia, female judges still had to recuse themselves from rape cases in case they would be biased towards the victim, yet it's never Wow, really? I had no idea. That's... I think that's quite uniform across um, the common law countries, um, but certainly in Australia. Yet that question's never asked of the men. Like, are the men biased towards the perpetrator because he's a man or is it just these women with those feelings, you know, who might be biased towards a female victim? Um, Similarly, jury selection, same thing. Um, So, you know, while superficially we might have changed some of those things, our, our processes still assume and, you know, Absolutely, there should be, to a degree, the presumption of innocence, I think. You know, you can't just be arbitrarily locked up and taken away. Absolutely not. There has to be a due process. But if we are looking at a legal system informed by the evidence base, then we should be understanding that in all likelihood, the the man being accused, statistically, is more likely than not to have committed that form of violence. Um, and I know we get a lot of pushback and resistance. Especially when it's so difficult for children and women to come forward. Well, yeah, I mean, we do get, we get a lot of resistance from men rights um, advocates um, and generally the public who don't want to believe women, who say there are false reports made, but again, the evidence is in. There are no more false reports made about these types of crime than any other type of crime. So if someone's coming forward and saying my house is broken into, if someone's coming forward reporting any other form of crime, we don't immediately jump to the assumption that they're lying, uh, but we continue to perpetrate perpetuate that narrative about women not being credible and that's then seen throughout the entire system so it's the woman again the victim survivor whose character is questioned the victim survivor whose sexual history is questioned the victim survivor whose memory is questioned the victim survivor who is the one under the microscope instead of the perpetrator so i think fundamentally our legal systems are inherently patriarchal and undermine and devalue women and do not see women and children as credible witnesses and that's how they're treated in cases of interpersonal violence as a witness in that system they don't have standing before the court which means they don't have lawyers in the room in the courtroom being able to advocate to say you know objection to this no that line of questioning can't be in actually we need to argue for this evidence to be included or that evidence to be excluded we don't have those protections in place throughout our legal system for victim survivors who ostensibly the state is acting on the behalf of but not necessarily in the interests of all the time and because of that we have such incredible attrition rates across the entire legal system from the people who report most victim survivors will never report to police um they are unlikely even to necessarily statistically unlikely to even seek out specialist services most victim survivors are going to disclose to someone they know someone they trust family member friend 
workplace colleague. Second to that, that's usually a health professional who's the person they will disclose to. So we've already got most victim survivors never engaging with police and the victim system and the legal system. But in Australia, we do actually have victim survivors calling police every two minutes to make a report. So we have overwhelming amounts of domestic family sexual violence being reported to police more than they can actually respond to. Many police commissioners in Australia will speak to the fact that this is 40 or 60% of their workload. And frankly, if I was that bad at 40 to 60% of my workload, I'd lose my job because the attrition rates between reporting through to charges being placed, through to prosecutions being taken up and charges being laid, prosecutions going ahead, through to convictions and then even decent sentencing, it just goes, you know, from up here, that amount where we've got, we talked about one in four women, one in five women being experiencing these types of violence down to, you know, 1.7% of cases that get to the legal system actually even having a conviction and a decent sentence or a custodial sentence. So while I don't think that the legal system is necessarily um, the best response for these types of crime, and I think certainly given the high rates of prevalence, we don't have a system, we shouldn't have a system that's ready to lock up, you know, one in four men, uh, <laughs> one in five men who are um, perpetrating these types of harm. Like it's a much bigger issue uh, than that and we need to stop their perpetration of those harmful behaviours um, and legal systems and uh, yep. that basically don't hold men to account, only enable other people to think that they can perpetrate and, and re-traumatise victims in a number of ways. And also in the best case scenario where they do go through the system and receive some sort of formal punishment, it doesn't help them with recidivist behaviour. It doesn't stop them from perpetrating again. In some cases, particularly if they're young men and they go into these systems, they're then set on a life course more likely to involve violence, more likely to involve crime. So our system doesn't provide the results that we want, not for not for victim survivors seeking justice and not for the main purpose, which would be, in my eyes, to reduce the perpetration and the prevalence of domestic family sexual violence, child sexual abuse. So this is an interesting point. This is an interesting point because what I've never been able to wrap my head around or understand is why boys, um, male teenagers and men feel so comfortable abusing girls and women. Where does that come from? When does that thought process start? When does that comfortability kick into play where it's almost normal and almost um, an entitlement? And then also, second to that, is oftentimes, as you experienced as a child with your maternal grandmother, why are women so inclined to explain the behavior away, to blame the victim, and to cover up these male abusers' behavior? When, when does that thought process start with, with it must be in childhood, that, that, that this is an acceptable way to think about girls, to think about women, and to think about what they are entitled to as boys and men? Yeah. Look, I think we're all frogs in that soup, um, but it is a case that once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. So we do have the opportunity to influence yeah. and, and change hearts and minds. 
But look, there's a number of known risk factors um, and uh, or reinforcing factors, and there's also the drivers of gender drivers of violence against women in Australia. We have this amazing framework created by our national body called Our Watch. It's called Change the Story, and they have a number of other plans um, related to violence against women with disabilities, violence against First Nations women in Australia, uh, which seek to look at those more intersectional. Uh, lens and those groups who are marginalised and often experience much higher rates of violence in Australia, First Nations women, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women experience 32 times the rate of uh, domestic family and sexual violence um, than the general population. Yeah, I think it's very similar in Canada as well. So, you know, when we're talking about the gender drivers of violence, these are the soup that we all live in, the social norms and factors, um, and they influence all of us, right? So there's a general condoning of violence, um, certainly of violence against women that forms part of that. Um, And then we've got uh, men's control of decision-making and limits to women's independence in both public and private life. And as we're all too aware, um, you know, again, it's very recent history that women have been able to seek paid employment out of the home. Um, Then we also have stuff around gender, uh, particularly the adherence to rigid gender stereotypes and socially dominant forms of masculinity that promote male entitlement and dominance over women and children, coming back to that very patriarchal model that women and children are belongings, are chattel, are property of men. And then driver four is about male peer relations and uh, cultures of masculinity that emphasise aggression, dominance and control. So they're what we understand as the social broad factors that are influencing everybody and are most commonly associated with um, the violence against women um, and others as well. So violence, transphobic violence, um, uh, violence against LGBTQI communities, and, and if we're laying an intersectional lens, then you include things like racism and ableism, which see, again, those groups that are marginalised, that are seen them less than, that are othered, that are dehumanised in our kind of very, the mainstream narratives about who is valuable and who isn't and they get pushed to the bottom for all of those reasons and so the violence is more tolerated um, against those groups and women and children fall into one of the major groups where violence against them is tolerated but if we're kind of looking at a life cycle um, and we're looking at other reinforcing factors there is the ones of you know condoning violence in general it's just kind of that normalization of violence and i have to say our media plays a massive massive contributing factor to this just the fact that so much Mm. of the entertainment we watch um, includes sexualized violence Um, it includes violence where the heroes use violence just as much as the bad guys use violence. Um, so resolving conflict, uh, getting your own way, gaining respect, all of those things are demonstrated, proven through violence, you know, and we can see in so many places through our politics, through our sports, heroes, all those types of um, male-dominated industries, CEOs, you know, so many of them are strong men, bullies. Yeah. Uh, so many of them use force to get what they want. Um a really critical one and, and sad one is the experience of an exposure to violence, particularly during childhood. So a massive risk factor for the likelihood of perpetration of violence in adulthood or re-victimisation 
is having experienced violence, usually in the home, but often, at, you know, if it's not in the home, it's by someone in a position of care or trust for children, if we talk about child sexual abuse. So while most child sexual abuse is still perpetrated by a family member, um, sibling or extended family member, like or, or a step-parent, um, then there's also teachers, sports coaches, uh, clergy uh, and the like. Um, so people who have access to children, really sad. Um, I remember hearing yes. a very well-known um, police officer from Victoria, this woman who'd worked so many years in, in sexual violence and child sexual abuse and particularly around child sexual abuse, she said it was just a, a crime of opportunity a lot of the time. And it comes back to that question about entitlement, like why do boys and men think, well, I'm sexually aroused, therefore I need to put it somewhere and I can put it in you or do what I like to you. Like that sexual entitlement for men's sexual arousal, which is their response to someone else. Like we really need to teach men and boys, your sexual arousal is your responsibility, your response to someone. Uh, It isn't the other person, um, you know, and I think an example of this is... Absolutely. Uh, only fans, which is rife, but only fans and the like, wait, you don't know this person. <laughs> You've never met them. Um, and you can be sexually aroused by Kim Kardashian or, you know, people who would never spend time with you, but you're sexually aroused by them. That does not mean that you have any entitlement uh, to engage with them sexually. So sexual violence, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, again, it's the home and then those other places. But uh, again, we know that in the main the violence experienced in childhood is perpetrated by men in the home um, against the mother uh, mostly. And I think I'd have to go and look at the exact um, stats, but I'm pretty sure it's one in eight uh, women identify having witnessed or yep. um, violence against their mother in the home by a man and, and not too dissimilar with boys as well. Do you think that there is almost a false thought process that that there's certain types of people who experience domestic violence or sexual abuse or that it it is limited just to those who are impoverished because a lot of the conversations that I'm having certainly within my own circles is that that's not something that we as the collective that's not an our problem where I'm actually seeing quite the opposite And I'm seeing a lot of signs from some of the women that I know or who are, you know, in and around me that there is violence, um, both of a physical, emotional, financial and sexual nature that's happening, taking place in the home. And then the children are, you know, by extension, being exposed to that. And so my fear is that those children grow up to become abusers themselves. um, And the women are, you know, quite Um, committed to protecting their abuser and making sure that nobody knows about it. Um, And so I just, I wonder why we have this narrative that this is um, uh, an issue only for those in a certain socioeconomic position. And then also why women are so um, inclined to keep it quiet and not to, um, and even to the detriment of their own children. Yeah, so I have my own story about, you know, that other, it happens to other people, which is why I actually started speaking out um, more publicly um, as a victim survivor advocate. Um, I had some lovely friends and I'd been working in Australia's capital, Canberra, which is known as a bureaucratic town, and I was indeed a bureaucrat. So 
working um, in reasonably, you know, high levels of income, people with high levels of education. Um, and I, it, we had really prominent um, survivor advocates around the time, such as Rosie Batty, speaking about the murder of her son by his father. Um, and it was just being spoken about more openly. And then, of course, more recently we had Grace Tame as Australian of the Year and she's a childhood sexual abuse um, survivor also. So we've had some really prominent um, survivor advocates uh, and in, over the last few years. But this was earlier than that, a little bit earlier than that, and, and a colleague of mine who, who's a friend, we had kids at the same age, um, and she said, I was, oh, it's just so horrific. I, I'm so glad, you know, I don't know anyone who's experienced that. And I was like, um, no, I have. <laughs> I have right in front of you here. Me, I have. Yeah. Um, and I'm really fortunate that for myself, um, being able to speak about it is my mum never shamed me about it. She was aware that, that society would shame me about it, so she spoke to me about that. But she never shamed me about it. I was yeah. always able to talk about it. It was never denied. It was never hidden. As I spoke about before, my immediate family knew about it. It's never been something that was off the table or needed to be like, oh, yuck, that's gross, don't talk about that, or, mm, you know, you're a problem for talking about it. So I think that set my path of recovery on a different track from a lot of other people. Um, and it also has mm -hmm. always allowed me to talk about it. And so over my life, I have received so many disclosures. Every time I've said, oh, yes, I experienced child sexual abuse, and someone else has told me an experience that they've had, you know, it is very yeah. real, those statistics. When you're sitting in a room and there's more than four women, chances are you and someone else have experienced domestic family sexual violence, child sexual abuse. Like the challenges around people not wanting it to see it in people they know is we have an unproductive narrative and discourse around these forms of violence that while on the one hand they are widely tolerated um, and I mean tolerated by the inaction on it by the lack of willingness to talk about it by the victim shaming all of those things create a culture of tolerance of these forms of violence and enabling the perpetration of them <clears throat> but at the same time we have this uh, good guy, bad guy, villain, monster, animal um, narrative as well. So when it is apparent that someone has committed these types of crime, instead of understanding that it's people we know, like and love who are most likely to use these forms of violence and abuse by the very nature of the fact that they are domestic abuse, family abuse, sexual abuse, like these are known intimate relationships, and mm -hmm. once you name someone that, though, then we go into this thing of going, well, that person has to be a bad person. And it creates a schism for people where they don't want to see someone that they know, that they like, that they love as the monster, the predator, the evil person. And so they try and justify this difference in appearance of, but they're really great with their kids in these ways, or, but he helped me move house, or, but I always talk to him about my problems and he's so caring. Sure, he can be all of those things and controlling and abusive <laughs> and use violence in the home against his intimate partner. That is really hard for people to sit with, that good people, people you like, people you respect, can use these forms of violence and harmful behaviours that we would traditionally say, okay, well, that person is a bad, bad person that we don't want to know and can't talk to. I think it's 
an absolutely important point that you just brought up because that is absolutely the narrative that a lot of people have and they don't want to think those things about it. But that in itself is an, an example of how the institution and how we've all been institutionalized to reason and justify these behaviors away. And for me, I take a hard line on um, any form of abuse, but specifically sexual abuse of any nature and physical, that that person is a monster and that person is a bad person and that person should be basically excommunicated from society. That is my hard stance on that. And I know that's not a popular opinion. And I know that there'll be lots of people um, who have something to say about it. But I, if you can do that to a child and you can do that to somebody who is physically not able to protect themselves against you, then there is something inherently broken in you and flawed. And that is not something that can be healed. That's not something that can be... Um, you know, there's not a program that's going to save you from that. Those people will always be abusers and will never stop. And the cycle will continue. So I thank you for, for making that comment, because there's so many people that I know specifically who have justified and reasoned um, an abuser's behavior away because they like a certain aspect of them, or they have a certain social economic status, or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's wrong. And it's yeah. it's a perfect example of how the institution is set up to protect these men. Absolutely, it is. And that narrative is, is particularly unhelpful. And it's, I think I would disagree in some points in that I, I feel like if we're looking at other, some of the reinforcing factors, and as I said, like children who've experienced violence, being more likely to go on to be adults who use or, or, or re-experience violence. I think we do have opportunities to change that trajectory. I think with the right interventions to support people heal from their own trauma, uh, to understand how to regulate, to understand how to have healthy relationships, to understand when their anxiety is causing them to be controlling, to understand when it is their sense of inadequacy or, or their own trauma that's being triggered that is creating this need to lash out because they haven't got the coping skills, they haven't been taught the tools on how to self-soothe, how to understand that, how to identify without feeling worthless, without having all of that come up in them again. So I think there's opportunities to break those intergenerational cycles of violence uh, when we're talking about that particular yeah. cohort of people who are more likely to, to offend. Um, and so I, I think there should be some compassion there. Uh, but I also understand that violence is a choice. These are choices. When you abuse yes. someone, when you take power over someone, when you do all of those things, that is a choice. Now, it may come from a place of insecurity. It may come from a place of trauma. It may come from a sense of not coping and not being able to regulate, but that doesn't make you less accountable or responsible for that choice. You have the opportunity to take responsibility for your own healing, for your own ways of being in the world, and your intention of your behaviour mm -hmm. does not outweigh the impact of your behaviour on other people. So what we find is a lot of perpetrators or people mm. who choose to use violence have a victim mentality. Uh, they feel attacked by everything and they Interesting. Say, I was just doing this thing because it was 
I was insecure or she provoked me. It's like all of this me, me, me uh, um, and not understanding that feeling those things doesn't justify your behaviour to control and hurt someone else. Uh, And that's a really maladaptive way of getting soothing for that feeling. Like it's just a feeling. We need to work with you on that. Um, So I I do think there are opportunities to change, change, but I I think that depends when you engage with them. I think it depends on their type of perpetration. I think it depends how often this has been their pattern. Like if we're talking about a man who's had three partners and and abused all of them, like his likelihood to change uh, is much lower than someone, you know, we're engaging with young men who men are the highest rates of sexual violence offenders. Not all of them continue that pattern. Um, however, we do know about trajectories of perpetration that once you're a low-level perpetrator or a high-level perpetrator, that's a pretty fixed pattern for life. So we do need to find interventions. Yes, and that, that was my point was was if we're getting them in childhood or even teenage years and absolutely there's opportunity to to break that cycle absolutely um but i think when you're moving into when you're dealing with an adult who has a pattern and that you know is consistently demonstrating this behavior and and has many and has perpetrated against other people there is a point in time where i don't believe that they are you can rehabilitate that person that that is absolutely who they are and That is a very scary place to be. It is. And I, you know, I come back to Maya Angelou when someone shows you who they are, the first, believe them the first time, you know. Um, and that's really mm-hmm. hard, particularly in romantic relationships and in new relationships where you're a bit glassy eyed and always there to see the best in people. And, and women are really, we're really socialized to invest in our men and to invest in them for their potential. But I think when it comes to these sorts of behaviors, you know, I know so for myself in my adult relationships and also for many other victim survivors that I've spoken to, you stay because the person's not violent all the time. There's lots of great things about them as well, usually. And you stay for that. You stay for the potential of the relationship to be something good, for it to be that lovely part all the time. Uh, and that makes it very hard um, because you're attached to that and you're invested in that. And if you've got kids, you're invested in that future. And you did ask a question about why victim survivors work to hide the perpetrator's behaviour. And I have some thoughts on that. This is just my personal opinions, um, but it's based on observations over a long time as well as, you know, one, it's that investment in the relationship um, and that social conditioning that we can fix our men, we can make them better, uh, that you invest, you know, and you take the good with the bad. I mean, literally a marriage vow, say, take, you know, for better or for worse. Uh, women get the raw deal there. But... Um, <laughs> very heterosexual normative construct I know I'm talking about there. So I acknowledge that marriage is available to people of all genders and sexualities and I support that. But um, (laughs) vows is very much the women are subordinate to men and you will take the good with the bad. And that usually means put up with the abuse you're going to cop. So that's one part is that it's steeped in that tradition and that expectation and those gendered norms. Two, when we're talking about patriarchal systems and structures um, that discriminate against women, Women don't have the same access to resources or control over assets that men do traditionally in the world um, and particularly in heterosexual relationships. It's still the dominant understanding of uh, the, you know, kind of significant minority, which I'm talking 40% or so, of people, of men who think in a heterosexual relationship 
the man still has the final say. And that's that's sort of from younger cohorts, and I, I'm not sure what the stats are in the older cohorts, but it's still a significant minority. It's still a lot, right? 40% of men basically thinking that they have the right to control the decisions. So, I mean, that has massive implications for policing, you know, the newly uh, criminalised behaviours of coercive control of the UK, Scotland, Australia. How are we going to do that if we talk about 40% of the population of men thinking that's cool, that's fine, that's what they're entitled to? So yeah, it's, it's some of those gendered um, norms around power distribution within relationships, uh, but that power distribution over control of assets and resources. So women often don't have anywhere to go. You know, we ask women to leave abusive relationships, but to what end? In Australia, there's new research and, and, you know, which has very plainly stated what a lot of us all knew but has put it in stark contrast. Women's choices are violence or poverty. We don't have a house to go to. Where are we going to put our yes. kids? We, if you're yep. a single mum, how are you going to earn a decent income and pay for everything? It, it's just then you've got family law, which is very poorly practised and provides, I think, very... And I'm speaking generalisation, so family lawyers, I know some great ones, you're doing great work, but I've seen way too much damage done through family law matters where the perpetration uh, is not acknowledged and that system becomes another means of perpetration for men to control, antagonise, harass their victims. Um, So our systems are still, again, not protecting women when they need it, um, enabling perpetration and protecting the men who perpetrate. But one of the reasons then that women do seek to hide or minimise the behaviour of their perpetrator is, one, they might be being gaslit the whole time and being told you're the one in the wrong, you're this, you're that, and they've internalised that. That's very common. Um, But... Even if they're aware of the behaviours, one, if they're aware of it and think it's abusive, they're probably feeling shame that they've accepted this for themselves or that this is where they are. You know, so many of us now have been brought up by really strident mothers, really, you know, dads who told us we could be anything, do anything. So to be in a relationship where you are experiencing abuse really challenges those ideas and you think, what have I done wrong? Because I had all the opportunities. I had all Mm. these. Why am I here? It must be something about me. Um, so that internalization of it, but just the shame of it. Um, there's so much more shame associated with victimization than perpetration. So still coming forward and even admitting to your friends is really hard. Um, it also creates risk. If the perpetrator is particularly controlling and highly volatile and they know that they've been outed, the escalation is much more likely. So a lot of the time women are making choices that I call protective choices. So they are in a violent situation. Mm -hmm. Their choices are seriously limited and they are doing the best to de-escalate and mitigate against further harms or an increase of the harms. And publicly outing a perpetrator, even if it's just to your family, is a really dangerous time. Any idea that you're seeking to leave, planning to leave, um, that period of time, the three months after leaving, is the most likely time that a man will attempt or commit murder of their current or ex-partner. So the threats are real, really, really real. Yeah. Um, And the desire to not be in that situation is understandable. And so I think 
you know, there's a whole range of reasons why people stay, you know, again, that idea that kids need both parents, you know, like that's really ingrained as well. Um, Mm. And it's, it's like kids don't need harmful parents. (laughs) Let's like get that. Parents have, I I mean, there's so much wrong with that statement. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we have talked about, you know, our legal system talk about parental rights. No parents have obligations. Children's have rights. Like we've got it. Ask about face. A hundred, 100%. Awful. So I think, you know, again, though, those social norms, they're very powerful. And if you're involved in a community where, the, where religion, um, particularly the monotheistic religion, so, you know, Judaism, Christianity, um, Islam, there's still a really big focus on the family unit, um, reinforcing all of that. If you, if you are in an abusive relationship and you want to leave, okay, where are you going to go? If you can't rely on your family who are going to shun you, we know that our services are overrun with demand for women in shelters, in crisis accommodation. There's no long-term solutions for that at the moment. The government seem to be funding anywhere effectively. Um, income is damaged and you might be put through years of family law matters which further <laughs> bankrupt you and take any hope that you might have had for a healthy future, and that could be for years. Your children then may be forced to have purpose. Uh, forced contact with their perpetrator where you're not there anymore and that's a heightened risk for the right. perpetrator against the children so sometimes staying is simply to be that barrier for the children to, to literally take the mm-hmm. abuse instead of them so you know it, it, it there's so many factors that go into why uh, a woman particularly may not disclose or may be seen as protecting the perpetrator when I think what we really need to understand is they're usually trying to protect themselves and their kids. Absolutely. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. And and knowing how flawed the system is, if a woman does come forward um, and does try to break the cycle and does try to get out of that situation, what would you, what would you advise for those who are, are listening um, who might be in that situation? No, knowing all of this and how difficult the next few years of their lives are actually going to be for trying to break the cycle and trying to protect themselves and their children, what would you advise them to do? How do, how do, how do they ensure, what measures do they take? How do they ensure their safety? How do they ensure that their children aren't going to be exposed to this anymore? Or is that even possible? Look, I would start from the premise that every person is an expert in their own experience and they are the person who knows Mm -hmm. the perpetrator the best and understands their patterns of behaviors the best so I would start by you know understanding that they're probably doing the very best that they can it's not your fault that you're experiencing these forms of abuse this is systematic you're not alone there are millions and millions and billions of other women and children around the world experiencing these forms of violence. It's not your fault. So first of all, trying to help you understand and alleviate that shame because we carry so much of it and that's really important for your own survival is to know it's not your fault. You are not a bad person because this is happening to you. Um, Second would be really in general terms, educate yourself, understand what these types of behaviours are and and how they work. Um, And then if you want to leave, make sure you do it very carefully, very discreetly, contact a specialist service. They can help you with safety planning. 
make sure you as much as possible know where you're going to go know who needs to know you know make sure people who need to know know and do all of that safety around um a leave leaving um but also know that if you choose to stay for any of the reasons that i went through before that doesn't make you a bad person it's a very hard situation you're in and the person who's at the center of that especially mothers who have kids they have to try to do the best that they can in those situations and there's no perfect response or answer and and choice in that situation yeah and dealing with um the fact that the majority of the perpetrators are men i am I certainly don't want to say that all men are abusers or, or perpetrators because that's certainly not the case. But what would you say to the men out there who they themselves have been victimized or know men who are abusing? What would you say to them? How are they? Do you feel they hold any form of responsibility towards managing the behaviors of the men who are perpetrators and abusers? What role do they play in this? Look, for the the men who were boys who experienced violence in the home, who've experienced sexual violence, um, they are our biggest overlooked allies in this situation. I think mm. the more that we can get men speaking about their experiences of domestic family and sexual violence um, and not the ones who come out and say, you know, this woman abused me, therefore all women are terrible evil witches and the whole world goes to work to support women, which is a narrative that some men come with, even when they've been abused by men, which I find a fascinating patriarchal spin on that and misogynistic spin. But I do think that Mm -hmm. part of that is that we haven't given boys and men a space in the broader work around domestic family and sexual violence because it has come out of women's movement in the the main. There hasn't been um, a natural space or or place for men and boys who want to own up and and share their experiences to come forward and talk about it. I think that is changing and I think the more we we can encourage those men who have made the choice not to use violence in in their adult years or maybe they started on that path, realised they didn't want to be like their dad, have changed that pattern or didn't want to be, you know, repeating cycles of abuse and, and trauma and have made positive choices for themselves, Let's get them out there talking. Let's get them being part of this movement. Like if we think about 50% of, um, and I'm using broad generalizations here, but if 50% of people who experience domestic family violence are children and 50% of children are boys, that is a huge amount of victim survivors that we are not hearing from um, that are silenced in this broader narrative and the discussion around this. So I please would ask those boys and men, uh, it's super hard. I think it's even more hard uh, for men to step forward and say, I've been abused because it is a challenge to our dominant forms of masculinity where you don't admit weakness, you don't admit these things, um, and particularly sexual violence can go so much to a man's identity of sexuality and everything. So I really um, understand that there are many barriers and in many, many ways men are silenced and policed for not even coming near talking about these issues in a way of their own personal experiences. But I think the time is right now for that. And I would put that invitation out there, male victim survivors, please come forward, please talk. So do you think that there is an opportunity or a necessity to 
reframe how we are positioning this narrative around the onus being on the women um, as being the victims rather than putting the onus on the actual perpetrators of the crime? Absolutely. Um, I think we have, you know, I stated earlier all those facts and and figures and they're almost all about victimisation. We actually haven't measured the perpetration of domestic family and sexual violence in any significant way uh, at a national level. So in Australia since 2018, I've been leading um, a campaign and an ask that we have a national study on the perpetration of domestic family and sexual violence because we need to understand the scope of the problem. We need to understand if it is 40% of men who are perpetrating coercive control, then our response of criminalising coercive control is entirely inadequate and not helpful. We haven't actually adjusted our solutions because we don't have the understanding of what the problem is. And while we continue to gather data Mm. on victimisation, it's important for understanding women's experiences, but it doesn't focus the problem from a policy perspective in the framing of what we're actually trying to stop. So what we're trying to reduce and stop and what should be seen as the problem we're trying to resolve is the perpetration of domestic family and sexual violence. Violence against women is a problem for women, but it's not a problem of or by women. We must be looking at this as a problem of perpetration, in which case we really need to be focusing on that 94, 95% of reported perpetration being done by men and understand what's going on. Why are men doing this? What's the pathway into perpetration? What are the pathways out of perpetration? How do we understand and identify children, young men, any adults at times of heightened risk for perpetration and provide the interventions to stop, prevent and reduce perpetration because right now we are not achieving that and I think that's because we have framed this as a women's issue and we can keep funding refuges, we can keep funding specialist services, we can keep funding legal systems, all of which only address the issue after the harm is done. This is not a harm reduction strategy that we have at the moment in the UK, in Australia, in the US. Those national programs that we see, those national strategies, they still look at this through the lens of responding instead of preventing and reducing. And I think without doing national scaled studies on the perpetration of violence to understand who's using it, how and what forms it takes, the characteristics of it, then we're never going to deal with this problem effectively. So I'm very hopeful we'll be getting the first one of those studies done in Australia. I'm going to keep lobbying. It's been five years. I'm going to keep going. Until then, we can't Brilliant. say. I, the work that you're doing is absolutely important. It's all It's all you can do. It, it, you, you just got to keep pushing forward. And, you know, I, it, just going back to what you, you were saying and, 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 putting the onus back on the perpetrators. It's like, we need to stop telling our daughters to cover their bodies up so they don't get raped. We need to start teaching our sons not to rape and not to abuse. That That is the crux of the problem. So thank you so much for, for fighting to get those studies done and doing the research and you know actually doing things to change the way that we are tackling this massive, massive issue. Uh, one of the one of the things that I um, or one of the reasons I should say it, that I wanted to do this episode with you is because I've been having conversations with friends of mine and acquaintances, and I've been talking about you know how do you know what the signs are as a parent? So wanting to protect our children, if you could just provide 
me and, and our listeners with um, some insight as to what the signs are of a child that's being sexually abused. What signs are they exhibiting? Um, and I know they are different to the signs that they would exhibit if they were being physically or emotionally abused. So if, if we could, you know, talk through that, because I think that would be massively helpful to loads of the parents that are listening um, to understand, you know, when they should, when the alarm bells should be raised. Yeah, a really um, clear one around child sexual abuse is a sudden change in the child's demeanour or confidence. So if you had a happy, bubbly, lovely child who trusted you, who was safe with you, who then suddenly starts saying things like, I can't, I can't do it, um, saying bad things about themselves, that total loss of confidence and that shrinking into themselves, uh, particularly for girls, um, the shrinking bit um, for girls mm. is a really key indicator, but that loss of confidence across the board for, for regardless of sex or gender um, is a big one, a sudden change in their demeanour. Um, another one is displaying sexualized behaviours themselves, um, might be touching other people's bodies in particular ways, trying to tongue kiss, um, those sorts of things where they're clearly uh, uh, mimicking behaviours that have either been done to them or that they've witnessed, um, a, a sudden mm-hmm. closeness or attachment to an adult who sort of creates a special bond with this person um, or, or that person creates a special bond with them. Um, you know, in, in my situation, I was three years old and the perpetrator was telling me that he was in love with me and that we would run away from my mother together so we could be together. Like the narratives are really twisted, but mm. they're like, you're so special. You're the best thing in my life. We've got something really special. Please don't tell anyone about it. Um, so looking out for those right. kind of signs of, re- uh, of relationships that are suddenly very close. Um, but they would be, they would be my key three things to look out for. Of course, um, for girls, there can be, and boys, there can be physical signs around interference with genitalia, but that's not necessarily always there. Um, so I think look for, in girls, unusual discharge, um, particularly, or, or bleeding um, from the vagina or anus. Um, also look for um, infections, uh, uteri- um, UTIs. In, in little girls is a really big indicator um, of interference with their genitals in some ways. Also, um, I forget their particular name, but it, it can be an infection of a little lump that happens on the labia. Um, it, it comes from irritating the skin, rubbing against the skin, and the, the skin clogs and gets a blocked um, – I forget the word. I do apologise, but but you'll know it. it it can freak people out. It can look a little bit like um, herpes, but it's it's more it's just an infected lump. So any kind of those sorts of infections, um, particularly for girls, is another key physical indicator. Um, but that sudden loss of confidence is is a huge, super big red flag that I would advise everyone to look out for. Okay, thank you for that. That's incredibly helpful. Um, so I know this is probably a hard episode for um, a lot of our listeners who might have experienced themselves child sexual abuse or are currently in a domestic violence situation. Um, so I want to implore and encourage them to speak out and to um, get some help. And is there 
a place that these um, women or men um, can go to um, get some advice or some help um, as to how to change their current situation or to get some therapy to help with the trauma that they've experienced as a child? Certainly. I think in the UK, um, I think it's Women's Aid is the most, the largest organisation or one of the largest organisations. I know um, Mel B of the Spice Girls has done a lot of advocacy with them. So I would be looking to those major organisations um, and, and they will be the ones that you can turn to first. In Australia, we have um, public lines, um, free lines, uh, 1-800-RESPECT for anyone who uh, feels concerned about what they might be experiencing or what a friend might be experiencing. We also have a national line um, for men who are concerned about their behaviours, um, which is called the Men's Referral Service. It's also a 1-800 number that you can call anytime to understand your own behaviours and to seek um, some brief intervention support. Um, and we also, you know, the systems can be quite difficult but your GP is always a good first point of call so often that is about having to take the mental health route which can um, feel like again you're being blamed because suddenly you're being labeled as having PTSD or you're being labeled as having depression anxiety um, all of those uh, all of those symptoms of trauma um, are a very natural response to the injury of abuse. Uh, but you can seek support through your GP um, to get access to services to support your emotional and, and mental health and well-being. So they would be the first places that I would hope people would go to. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lula. And I always finish my episodes with posing a question to our guests, which is the same question every time. So has there ever been or was there ever a moment where you felt like you should have said something or you wanted to say something, but you didn't. And what was it? And why didn't you speak out? Gosh, yes. And so many of them from the micro to the Mac to really significant ones. Um, a challenge for me over the last few years has been supporting a friend who is in a violent relationship um, and really struggling with knowing how to support her and her children, knowing the constraints of her situation being that she's isolated in a country away from her family and so her partner and her kids are her family, lack of access to resources, all of those things that I spoke about before, but knowing that the type of violence that she is experiencing is on the high-risk end and for me, knowing what I do, knowing that there's the potential for lethality um, and really walking that line of being the person that she trusts so that when she is in danger, she contacts me and wondering whether I need to be the one to rip the cord to call the police, knowing the police have already been involved. Mm. And so what are they actually going to do? Um, but knowing that, yeah. You know, the, the potential her life is in danger. So how would I feel if he finally does that? That is a really, really difficult one. Um, I think many of us have experienced a similar situation to that. And I don't think there's any right answer to it. And every situation is different and brings on its own set of challenges. Um, but the fact that she's got you is 
is, is a gift. Um, so just keep supporting and keep doing what you're doing. Um, and thank you so much for sharing. Um, it's a difficult topic, um, but one that is so important that we give a voice to. Um, and it's so important that we say these things out loud um, and we say them loudly, um, regardless of how uncomfortable it is, um, because it only stops when we start speaking um, and it starts with a conversation. So let's keep talking and let's keep sharing um, and let's keep being brave. So thank you so much, Lula, for all the work that you're doing for women and children and men. And um, thank you for sharing your experiences and your insights and your advice. I know that there's so many people listening. Um, you've been a massive help to. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Why Are We Whispering podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening and leave a review. You can also follow us on Instagram at Why Whisper Podcast. And don't forget to speak up and out. Let's stop whispering.